So what, what I'd like to do after very briefly just touching on to some of these defenses, and we'll talk more about them in the afternoon, is to give you an opportunity to be in conversation. Um, and so this will be very brief so that you have <clears throat> plenty of time for that conversation. So some of the obstacles right, that, that we've explored are um, very central to the psychotherapeutic understanding of how we cope. And the therapists here are very familiar with these protective mechanisms. Right? Originally, they were called defense mechanisms, in part because Freud was so partial to militaristic adjectives. Um, but over time, and actually it didn't take long, you know, there, he had colleagues who wanted to soften, you know, soften the judgments and bring, bring the spirit of compassion into this tradition. That, that quickly got reframed as protective mechanisms, right? This is John and I were talking about everything we do has a function and context matters hugely. And so there are times when our protective mechanisms are exactly what we need in order to stay safe, survive, carry on. Other times they're holdover from prior experiences where that's what was available. And then they start to interfere with a fuller experience or more emotional freedom, et cetera. So very briefly, in some of the primary protective mechanisms, most famously are denial, which is considered to be a primary defense mechanism because unlike repression, it means that something has never actually come into awareness. We have it has gone away, right? It may have flitted in through a dream or a symptom or affect, right? But it has not been consciously grappled with. We're in denial about conflicting feelings that influence our spiritual practice, right? They, they have never been reflected upon. Probably we have all needed denial at some point. But it's really interesting when denial can then shift into repression, <laughs> where it can come into the mind, we can feel the, the discomfort, and then at times, right, temporarily repress what we become conscious of. Now, obviously, if we are defaulting to repression again and again, right? So as Jeff mentions in his chapter, you know, there might be the belief that somebody doesn't deserve happiness. That's, that's never been consciously grappled with, right? It interferes with spiritual practice because they might find that as they're learning the teachings, as they're going on retreat, actually they're starting to feel differently. They're starting to access 
some relief, some of the flexibility that Barb described, maybe some self-acceptance. Right? But if the, you know, if the belief remains unconscious, it, it can pull somebody out of their practice. If it comes up and then disappears, right? If we, if we try to repress again and again, it obviously makes it tough to continue to work with, right? Again, this is going to be brief because I want you to have plenty of time, but also rationalization. And this, I think, is probably increasingly an obstacle for many practitioners because it's easy to rationalize. I don't really have time for this. (laughs) There's a lot going on, right? There are 30 people who are actively needing me and then there are taxes and uh, the house isn't clean and, uh, you know, I haven't responded to the dentist and blah, blah, blah. goes on and on and on. Right? Sitting for 30 minutes, dropping into the subtle body. It makes sense, but there's stuff happening that is top priority. Right? So, so the defense of rationalizing why we struggle with practice, I think, is probably very common, understandable. Right, but worth being curious about. Undoing is poignant, right? When we might tap into experiences that are healing, and that then stirs guilt, it touches into unconscious beliefs, Right, that the healing is not deserved, is not warranted, is not reliable. And so then we undo whatever has actually been an agent for healing. We lose touch with the teacher. We stop participating in our community. Right? We let, we let it go, we undo it. It seems like it's just getting eclipsed by other stuff, but if we think about the power of the unconscious, it's, it's worth noticing that there might be you know, an active effort to undo what's, what's freeing us. Yeah. Turning against oneself. And these, by the way, they're all... You know, they're all described in Jeff's chapter, so if you want to go back to this, you can. Um, I'll find the page number for you, but um, there, there are references. Yeah. Turning against oneself, it has, again, something to do with guilt. And sometimes the, the conscious self-attack Right, that can happen um, when we're actually trying to heal. Right? And the, this is another reason why we need patience in our healing endeavors. Right? So that we don't just stop with the self-attack or the guilt. 
We, we work with it consciously. Intellectualization, I, I relate to this. I'd love to think about the Dharma. I love to think about healing. It's probably my favorite thing to do. Uh, I love to read. I love to think about what other people are thinking about. And so it's tempting. It's tempting for me to want to think about the Dharma rather than to just be with the mind and the heart and the body. And I think I have some company uh, for, for people who are curious, <laughs> curious about concepts and theories and methodologies. Right? Intellectualization can come in as an obstacle. Again, it doesn't mean that it's bad, but it might, you know, it might become so dominant that it prevents accessing a fuller contemplative experience, right? where the discursive mind actually has more opportunity to rest, to settle. And as Barbara was saying, to kind of clear out, clear out all of the thinking so that there's more experiencing, right? There's more direct experiencing. And then we're going to move into this last point in the afternoon that in order to develop a truly meaningful relationship to our spirituality, to our contemplative efforts, will probably also involve understanding and reflecting upon the various ways we might be resistant. Right? And that can include what's traditionally laid out as the hindrances and the fetters in the Abhidharma, and then include some of these more contemporary insights into the ways in which our resistance might manifest.